And so let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. And we've just entered into this final chapter of Titus. And similar to the previous two chapters, this pastoral epistle is filled with practical guidance for Titus and the churches on the island of Crete. You may have noticed that the scope of Paul's letter continues to broaden as we've gone through it. He had a very narrow focus in chapter 1 as he zeroed in on church leaders and talked about what what the qualifications look like for leadership within the church and that served a purpose because it allowed uh, those men who were called and um, gifted to deal with the false teaching and the false teachers that are prevalent within the church. And then in chapter 2, his letter broadens out even more to include the entire church. He starts talking about the testimonies specifically of the generations within the church, male and female. And he then provides this theological undergirding for those instructions rooted in the gospel in a passage that we got to study in verses 11 through 14. And then in chapter 3, it broadens out even further. Now it's talking about our public testimony to, as citizens to the unbelieving world around us. And we were challenged in the opening two verses to submit to the governing authorities that God has ordained and placed in our lives. And in those two verses of chapter 3 last Sunday, Paul provided seven reminders so that our testimonies can bring God glory as believing citizens. And I shared that in verse 1, it really features how we're supposed to relate to the state. And then in verse 2 is how we come across to the loss. And I shared that the significance of that is so that God can be glorified in our testimonies. We get to put him on display as we recognize that these are God-ordained authorities that he's placed in our lives that he wants us to submit to in a world that is not too fond of submission. Well, Now, Paul is about to do the same thing in chapter 3 that he did in chapter 2. After he provided the instructions, he's going to provide this theological justification for those instructions in verses 3 through 7 rooted in the gospel. And on a side note, I'll share this. I was thinking about taking a break from Titus to preach maybe a passage that focused on the nativity or another Christ-centered passage just, just, just for a break. But as I began to look at these verses, it couldn't be more appropriate to prepare our hearts for the Christmas season than to zero in on this passage. Well, let's read Titus 3, and I'm going to only read verses 1 through 7. And let's keep in mind that our focus today will be on verse 3. Reading from the NAS, starting in verse 1, it says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In the bulletin, you'll quickly notice that the title of today's message is The Ultimate Reminder, and it's actually born straight out of the context of our passage. Last week, we learned that the opening two verses instructed Cretan believers, and they instruct us as well today, as to how we can glorify the Lord through our testimonies as public citizens. And these seven spiritual reminders given in these two verses help us to do just that. Paul now points to what our sermon title shares is the ultimate reminder. As Titus 3.3 reveals seven realities that the gospel saves us from so that we can celebrate and appreciate God's ongoing work in our lives. I thought it was so interesting that numerically, after giving the seven reminders, that Paul reveals seven realities about our human depravity. The point that Paul is making, and the one that God wants you and I to see, is that our obedience to what is being asked of us in these opening verses, 1 and 2, is now possible because of God's saving work in our lives. God's work through the gospel saves us from these realities. As we'll see, there are some very practical implications that flow into God's ongoing work in our lives as believers. These realities serve as the outline in your notes. Reality number one, God's work through the gospel saves us from being foolish. Reality number two, the gospel saves us from being disobedient. Reality number three, the gospel saves us from being deceived. Reality number four, the gospel saves us from being enslaved. Reality number five, the gospel saves us from wasting our lives. Reality number six, the gospel saves us from being detestable. Reality number seven, the gospel saves us from hating one another. Verse three parallels with contrasts found in verses one and two. And I put together a chart that I call the ultimate reminder chart. Did you receive that as a bulletin insert? Thank you, uh, publishing team and admin team, for honoring that late request. And I want to draw your attention to this chart. The reminders that we covered in last week's message are on the left, contrasted with the realities found in verse 3, which are on the right. And I've called it the ultimate reminder chart. And on the left side, with the gospel, we can embrace the reminders in Titus 3, 1 and 2. And it gives us instruction. We are to be submissive, obedient, not to malign, ready for every good work, peaceable and gentle. Now what's interesting is it was talking about the context of governing authorities, right, to government and secular authorities. But we receive commands in the scriptures as it relates to all of these things 
just in general as believers. And then notice this week, without the gospel, the realities in Titus 3.3 describe who we were before Christ. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, malicious and envious, detestable, hating one another. We ended last week's sermon focused on the realities that were taking place in Ferguson, Missouri. If you'll recall, those that weren't here, that's what we we focused on, just as it related to the government's announcement and the verdict that was, was reached. And what took place in Ferguson was simply a concentrated manifestation of the realities that we see right here so clearly in verse 3. As Benjamin Watson shared, what gives him hope and what should also give us hope as well is the gospel because it connects needy sinners to Christ who can both be enabled and empowered to change. And so as we put this verse under the microscope today, I want to share with you it's not to exalt our sinfulness. It's not to exalt the depravity of man but it's so that we can rejoice in our growth in Christ and the continuation of making measurable spiritual progress in our lives. Just as the sermon proposition indicates, Titus 3.3 reveals seven realities that the gospel saves us from so that we can celebrate God's grace and ongoing work in our lives. Well, let's get started with reality number one. The gospel saves us from being foolish. Look at the beginning of verse three. Paul writes, for we also once were foolish ourselves. And our verse starts out with a conjunction, for, that's actually uh, pointing us to the preceding instructions, I'm sorry, that pointing to what follows um, and the explanation of why the preceding instructions should be embraced. And the Apostle Paul's point is that we believers once shared something in common with the unbelieving For we also once were foolish ourselves, just as the verse says. And the verb translated we were is thrust to the head of the sentence for emphasis in the Greek. And it's pointing to this continuous habit of life in which we lived before we came to faith in Christ. And the plural form here addresses this to all believers. We must remember who we are what we were before the grace of God broke into our lives. One commentator said, a poor memory makes for poor ministry. Titus 3.3 helps us by displaying each of these seven realities, and it serves as the ultimate reminder. The word once is used here temporally and points to some time frame in the past, and it can be translated once or formally, And Paul actually includes himself in the plural pronoun, ourselves, which again underscores that before the grace of God came to us, we were no different from the rest of the unbelieving world. First, we were like them because we were foolish. This word means to be without understanding or thought. It is the opposite of wise. And the Bible has a lot to say about foolishness. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. 
Certainly the most foolish thing anyone could ever do is to deny God's existence and the authority of God in their life. This is the epitome of all foolishness. And we see this practically when we're sharing the gospel with unsafe family and friends as they roll their eyes, as we attempt to help them see their great need for Christ. And what's ironic is that the Bible even predicts this reaction in 1 Corinthians 1.18 when it says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. God considered the rich man who made no provision for eternity to be a fool as well in Luke 12.20. And the Apostle Paul uses the same word to describe the Galatians who were ready to depart from grace and to return to works of the law. And he also used it to describe a money-hungry lust to become rich in 1 Timothy 6.9. The Lord Jesus Christ's work in the gospel saves us from all such foolishness. The Holy Spirit has illuminated our hearts and our minds to see and understand the truth about Christ. Not only have we abandoned our own efforts meritoriously of somehow attaining some self-righteousness in our standing before God, but our repentance leads us to forsake the foolish and worldly desires that wage war against our souls. Now it goes without saying that as believers, we still have the propensity to be foolish. As one man shared, every man is a fool for at least five minutes a day. Wisdom consists of not exceeding the limit. <laughs> the gospel saves us and allows us to mature and grow so that we can see the ongoing threat of foolishness. And just like a drop of the most highly concentrated chemical in a water supply that pollutes it, so a little foolishness has the potential to contaminate and permeate through the life of a Christian. Believers are blessed with the opportunity to celebrate God's grace and ongoing work in our lives, and we see the value of his wisdom and guidance. It is good for us to regularly reflect on how God desires to protect us from ourselves. In what practical ways does the Lord offer his protection from our foolishness? I want to share two of them. First, God gives us the mirror of his word so that it exposes our foolish ways. Ephesians 5.17, a verse that I've mentioned before. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he gives it to us clearly in the scriptures. He wants us to acknowledge him. He wants to give us clear direction. He wants to steer us clear from foolish paths. He wants us to look at him through his word. Proverbs 12.15, another one well-known in this room. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. God gives us the mirror of his word, the counsel of his word to expose our foolish ways. Secondly, God gives us other spirit-filled believers who can see our foolish blind spots. I haven't got it figured out yet, and I'm sure you haven't either. It's hard to see what's coming from behind us, right? Spiritually speaking, things that could potentially be encroaching on our life. 
And it's happening. There's things that want to, 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 to attack. There's things that want to infiltrate our lives spiritually to deter our worship of Christ, our obedience to Christ, to allow us to have a foolish testimony. And Proverbs 11.14 says this, Without guidance, people will fall. That's every single one of us in this room. Every single person on this planet. Without counsel, you will fall. But there is victory in a multitude of counselors. Proverbs 24.6 says this, for, buys, for by wise guidance, you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors, there is much victory. We're in a war. We're in a battleground. Ephesians 6 calls us to put on our spiritual armor every day. We need the blessing of brothers and sisters who can get our back, that can look for us, and to say, brother, you are going down a path, and I'm a little concerned about this situation, whatever it might be, this career move that you want to make, your desperate desire to get out from underneath the roof of your parents, you dating this person, or that person. You making this decision. We need the eyes of other people to help us. And God uses spirit-filled believers who can see our foolish blind spots. So questions, what are some big decisions that you're in the process of making right now? Young people, maybe it is you're thinking about where, where to go to college. What are you going to study? What are you going to do for your career? Single folks, it could be on dating somebody. For those who are dating, it could be the possibility of even thinking about proposing or being proposed to, right? Maybe you're trying to determine whether God is calling you to a full-time position of vocational ministry. Maybe you're thinking about starting a family. You're a newlywed couple and you don't have children yet. Do you want God's safety net of protection so that you do not make a foolish decision? This is exactly why in the ultimate reminder chart, you can look right there, that it shows that foolishness is contrasted with submission. To avoid being foolish we will submit to godly counsel of his word as well as godly counsel from strong believers that God grants us access to. And this is exactly how he affirms his will for our lives. We need the word. We need the word. And it goes without saying, are you, are you making a commitment to spend time and getting direction in the word? It's a primary resource. It's what God has. It's where God provides answers for many of the questions that we have. Are you reading and studying God's word? Have you established at least one or two Christian mentors in your life? And I rejoice that we're in a church of care groups, that we have people who want to uh, provide counsel and who want to help you, who are there as advocates and want to serve as sounding boards for you? Do you take advantage of those resources that God gives you? There's other people, older, seasoned saints in our church that have much life experience that we can appeal to. 
Have you asked them for mentoring advice? Well, Titus 3.3 reveals seven realities that the gospel saves us from so that we can celebrate God's grace and ongoing work in our lives. Reality number one, God's work through the gospel saves us from being foolish. Reality number two, the gospel saves us from being disobedient. Look back at verse three, and it shows our, our next reality. We were also disobedient. This word describes one who will not be brought under the authority of another. It can also be translated unbelieving. And just, you'll recall last week, just as there was some overlap with the, the reminders of submission and obedience, here there's some overlap here with, with uh, foolishness and disobedience. Both involve the rejection of God's authority and other God-ordained human authorities in our lives. And here in verse 3, it may be disobedience to the governing authorities mentioned in verse 1. But if so, it's only as an expression of disobedience to God. Because we read this in Romans 13, that when we cross-referenced that passage last week, in Romans 13, 2, it shared that whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Disobedience is a natural consequence of unbelief, and it reflects the sinful rebelliousness bound up in the human heart. Paul uses it to describe what becomes of those who continually reject the light of God's revelation in Romans 1.30, and of what will characterize humanity in the last days according to 2 Timothy 3.2, where it says, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Paul is reminding us that we too once were characterized by such an attitude, but by God's grace, through the gospel, God granted us a heart of repentance. And I love, I love what 1 Peter 1, 2, and how Peter expresses it, at the beginning of his epistle, he says, We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. The gospel call is a call to obedience to God. And this is important for us to keep in mind as we consider sharing the gospel with unbelievers. You wouldn't ask a blind man to drive you to church this morning. Would you? Some of the older couples are like, I don't know, the eyes haven't been checked on your spouse yet. Maybe a blind person did drive you to work. No, or the church this morning. You wouldn't ask a blind person to drive you because it would be impossible for them to fulfill that command. And it's so interesting because sometimes I think that we have this expectation of unbelievers, family and friends that Somehow, you know, we invite them to go to church and they don't come. We um, want them to honor God with their lives and they don't honor God with their lives and they're blind. And we just don't get it. Why? Oh, why? I, you know? Invite them. They're blind. They need the gospel light of conversion to shine into their heart, into their lives. And so this serves as a great reminder for us. There's a number of ways that we could apply obedience, believe me. But as it relates to 
to what God has done and blessing us and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we could be obedient to obey Jesus Christ. I want to think about it just as it relates to our opportunities with Christmas and potential interactions with unbelieving family and friends. What is your plan to share the gospel? Some of you have been praying, and I know that our prayer ministry was encouraged by a few people who turned in names to pray for family, that they would be saved. Ed Gonzalez, I know, is, is praying for his father, Edward Sr. He's praying for his grandpa, Valentino. He's praying for his uncle, Ronaldo. He's praying for opportunities to reach them with the gospel. I wanted to share some ways that you can be ready to, to share the gospel. Some of you are going to get asked to pray before the family gathering. Why? Because when you're with unbelievers and the time and there's this obligation to bless the food, they, like, they run from that, right? It's like, um, we're just going to eat, right? You know, and I've had that happen in my family where even at Thanksgiving or Christmas where it's just gone right into the food. You know, there's no mind to even say a blessing. And I remember, why? Because no, their heart hasn't been changed. They just want to eat. But some of you are going to have the opportunity to pray. Be ready to pray the gospel. Be ready specifically to articulate the words of the gospel. You get to share it with everybody right there in a period of silence when nobody else can talk. Doesn't get any better than that, right? Wish there were other opportunities to pray. You can do... Uh, you, you can put gospel tracts in, in your, your gifts, in your Christmas gifts. Some of you know, probably already do that. Send them out with your Christmas cards. You can arrange for one of your relatives who's also a believer to share their testimony at the family Christmas party. Just, just arrange it. You know, my family, you know, they would be, be like, what are we doing this for? But... You know, in, in the end, um, I was actually thinking about that for my twin brother, Jay. don't know if he's there yet, but he's actually in India. I think I shared on a missions trip right now this week. But I was thinking, like, it would be great just to ask him. They're gonna, they're, they expect to hear it from me. But it's going to be radical if they hear it from him. Express your thankfulness for, for those in your family personally. And purposefully, you go up to someone in your family who's unsaved and you say, you know what? I want you to know that I thank God for you. I do. And I hope that our relationship can grow stronger. I really do. I praise God for you. That's powerful testimony. That has a, a direct impact and that points them vertical. Reality number one, the gospel saves us from being foolish. Reality number two, the gospel saves us from being disobedient. Reality number three is this, the gospel saves us from being deceived. And it's the next one listed in our verse, that we once also were deceived. The word means to lead astray, but in the Greek it's in the passive, so what that means is that we're being led astray. 
actually led astray by another. Unbelievers are following a false guide to life and eternity. And we all followed that train once too. They're listening to another voice. And the present tense describes this as the habitual course of life. And it could be translated continually being deceived. And Paul uses this word twice in 2 Timothy 3.13 when talking about the last days. He shared that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And the gospel saves us from continually being deceived. And it's also the very reason why we can command it, and this points back even to our obedience, that we can, we can respond to the commands to not be deceived. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, like in Galatians 6, 7, James 1, 16, and other New Testament passages. And it was interesting to me as I was creating the ultimate reminder chart and I saw the parallel with these these contrasts in the, the verses. Initially, when I saw this reality being deceived, I didn't see how it lined up. So what I did through the process of elimination, I got the other ones lined up and then saw what was left. And the only reminder left was not to malign. And the connection quickly became apparent. When we malign someone, and if you weren't here last week and you didn't hear the message, we talked about what that word means. It means to blaspheme. It means to insult. It means to, to curse. We talked about waiting in line. Right? Waiting in line at the post office and the long holiday lines. And it became apparent to me that these things do really contrast. Not to malign. We're, 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 listen, you are so deceived when you are maligning someone. We are so deceived. When we somehow think that, that you know, honestly, can I just tell you? The, the line at the post office, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like this if I was running the show. You guys know that? So just, you guys can think back to it, right? And you, we can be tempted to, to, to say that. How do we know it wouldn't be longer? It, it would probably be out the door, down the block with us running the show. But you know what's typical is we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we? And we're reluctant to do the same for other people. Why? Because we're deceived. We're deceived. And we need to remember this as we're standing at the airport and we're going to be traveling to Chicago. And I know that, you know, with three kids and you're standing in the TSA line and you're like, I can't hold Liam and Sophia much longer. You know, it's like, I, I, can we get through faster, please? You know, the temptation can come to malign. And we talked about this last week. It's not an opportunity to malign. It's a time in line to shine. And I should just quit my pastoral career and just go right into my rap career, right? I mean, bust a rhyme, in line, shine, don't malign, it's about time. Ain't no crime. The gospel saved us from deception, especially our pride and deception about ourselves. And we get to celebrate God's grace and ongoing growth in our lives as he helps us develop a right view of himself and a right view of others. 
that is free from our deception. Reality number four is this. The gospel saves us from being enslaved. Look at the middle of verse 3 as it continues. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and then it says this, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. This word we've talked about before, the verb enslaved points to an abiding and continuous nature of the unbeliever's bondage. And this word can be used either positively or negatively. And here Paul uses it negatively, just like he did in Romans 6, 6, when he wrote, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin like we were before. The gospel saves us from being enslaved. And instead of the word sin, here the Holy Spirit led Paul to write other, uh, two other nouns that serve as our, our subpoints under our fourth reality. Letter A is to various lusts. And though the noun lust can be neutral, it is frequently used by Paul to describe strong impulses that arise within from a person's ungoverned sinful nature. He just shared this exact same word. It might sound familiar uh, in Titus 2.12 when he mentions worldly desires. That's when we talked about it. Paul also told Timothy to flee such lust in 2 Timothy 2.2. And though the emphasis, and I shared this last time, was that it can be of sexual nature, it goes far beyond to include other forms of lust. I said that the most comprehensive list of lust that we get is found in 1 John 2.16. Some of you probably just write about in that area uh, of your study, in your care group. It includes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of pride. And the gospel saves us from all these evil lusts so that we can celebrate God's grace and ongoing work in our lives. Letter B is our second sub-point, and it says, or speaks to enslavement to various pleasures. And Paul doesn't use this word anywhere else. Luke uses it, James uses it, Peter uses it, and it's always in a negative sense. We actually derive our word hedonism from this Greek word. And hedonism is the belief that pleasure and happiness is the most important goal in life. And with both of these nouns, Paul uses a Greek adjective which is translated various that actually applies to both of these, various lusts and various pleasures. And it's such a cool word. You know what it means? Multicolored. And it points to the multiplicity and diversity of the urges and the desires that can arise to control a person. And just like a chameleon, uh, the it changes. The, the temptations around us, they, they change colors. Do you have any idea how much a marketing agency, an advertising agency spends annually just on color schemes? Just to appeal to the lusts of our heart? I'll tell you a really interesting story. Before this church was a ministry building, I, there was a guy, I think I mentioned this, he came and 
and he worked for the marketing agency, an advertising agency that used this building. And he said, can I just look around? Can I just come inside and, and see what, what the place looks like? They, they had put $2 million in renovations into this facility, that, that agency. And you know what they did? Look around. You see all these little canary yellow nuts and bolts? You see all these different colors? The whole inside of this building used to be that. Look, you can, the, the, you can still see areas where the brick was painted, where, where the wood was painted. It was all painted colors. They had to go through and power wash all of the, the, the colors off. And it, it's such a good picture for us, church. It's such a healthy reminder that the secular world it was a secular agency that was, was advertising, that tries to appeal to the lust. It's always encroaching. It's always trying to get you to see something in a different color, something in a different way, to entice your spirit in some other way, to appeal to a lust in your heart in some other way. You have victory over this area of lust, and then something else is going to come, and this is how the enemy works. He's going to give you something colorful to look at, something pleasurable, something delightful to the eyes. And just like a piece of fruit that looks beautiful on the outside, whatever that piece of fruit was on that tree, in the garden, that looked delightful, that caused the first sin, so it is. So it is with our lusts. So it is with our lusts. And the world is always trying to sink its hooks into our flesh. And it wants us to be lazy. And it wants us to sit back. And it wants us to think about just the, the vacations and, and all the things and the timeshare that you need here and all the, the things that you just you deserve. Your flesh deserves these things, right? Not being critical of vacation. It's good. It's healthy. But it's a constant onslaught of appealing to, you know, the, the reclining chair of life. That's what I'm talking about. That's what it does. It wants us lusting so that we spend our money and our time focusing on material possessions. And right now, we're at the climax of that onslaught, are we not? Christmas time, all the sales, start Black Friday, and they're going to continue. All the junk that didn't get sold before Christmas is going to be like half price. So if you're smart, you plan your family Christmases like after New Year's, and you save big bank. It's a, it's a way to do it, right? But the world is going to tell you about all the things our flesh needs, the loss that function as lies saying, you really, really, really need this. And let me tell you, no, you don't. No, you don't. Well, I think all of us would admit that God has brought us to a place and taken such good care of us that even if we didn't get one thing for Christmas, we, we should be content, right? And I'm not, uh, believe me, we're going to buy Christmas gifts, and I know that you are too. I'm not speaking against that. But I, what I'm doing is is helping us, and I need to hold my own heart in check. Why? Because there are things and there's the appeals that are going to take place that are going to try to grab a foothold. 
tried to grab a hold of our heart, saying that we have to have them. And the gospel saves us. We have been freed from our enslavement, from these evil lusts and pleasures. It is the path of foolishness to return to their bondage. How strong is the world's material grip on you? How strong is the world's material grip? Think about that. It's good to think about. Are there any evil lusts that you are allowing to take root in your heart? The eyes, the, the flesh, pride. The ultimate re- reminder serves to remind us that God saved us from all these evil lusts and desires, and we get to celebrate his grace and ongoing work in our lives. Titus 3 reveals seven realities, and we've covered four of them so far. The gospel saves us from foolishness, from disobedience, from deception, from enslavement. Reality number five, the gospel saves us from wasting our lives. Look back at the middle of our verse. Before believers trusted in Christ, it says, we were spending our life in malice and envy. If you have the ESV, I think it says something like passing away our days or something, right? What's it say? Passing our days. Yeah. Wasting our lives in malice and envy. Paul uses two nouns to describe such a life set up by the preposition in. In malice and envy, and they serve as our subpoints. Letter A is malice, and here it's used to describe maliciousness or inward viciousness of disposition. And in our ultimate reminder chart, look where it's contrasted. Look what it's contrasted with. It's fittingly contrasted with the word peace. And Paul also uses this word in Ephesians 4.31 where God's word instructs believers by saying, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Malice functions as this, really this umbrella term to represent all of those things. Anger and clamor. All those hostile virtues. Letter B is the word envy. It can also be translated jealousy. In our chart, it's contrasted with the word gentle, which can also be translated considerate. Rather than living our lives in jealousy and envy, the gospel saves us and allows us to be gentle and considerate of the needs of others. The gospel saves us from wasting our lives in malice and envy, and we get to celebrate that. We get to yield to the Spirit's work of peace and self-control. And this allows us to stay calm in some pretty hostile environments sometimes, some pretty volatile situations. I think just as it relates to family Christmas parties, sometimes there's some tension, you know, to be prepared for that. Work, stress of the end of the year, getting numbers in. All these things, right? School. Retaliation is never an option for a believer. And Christ serves as our supreme example when he did not retaliate or revile in return. The gospel also enables us to repent of jealousy quickly and God's grace and ongoing work in our lives. This, this will happen if we're mindful as we, as we look to his word 
It saves us from those things. Reality number six is this. The gospel saves us from being detestable. Notice the end of verse three. It says, for we once also were foolish ourselves at the beginning. And then it says this at the end, hateful and hating one another. And there's actually two verbs here, and they're very similar in meaning, but they point in two distinct directions, and that's why I opted to have them as two different realities. The first verb is translated hateful in the NAS, and I like how the ESV translates it when it says hated by others. It can also mean detestable or despicable, so that it could be rendered that as unbelievers that we were once detestable to others, were despicable to others. You were the star of the movie, Despicable Me. The word is only found here in the New Testament, so we don't have another verse to cross-reference. In the Greek, it's best understood in the passive sense because the next word is, in, is active. Many believers, before they were saved, they were despised. Their testimony was corrupt. And here in the sixth reality, the hate is directed towards them. And the gospel opens the door, not just to be liked by other people, but to display testimonies of godly character that encourage others, not discourage others. The gospel saves us from being detestable and despised by others. And you'll notice this in the ultimate reminder chart, that the gospel enables us to be considerate of all men rather than being despised. A heart that is born again to serve God and to serve our fellow man is a fragrant testimony. Instead of a stinky one, right? Being despised. Titus 3 3 reveals seven realities that the gospel saves us from. And we're on our very last one. The gospel saves us from hating one another. Here, the ESV and the NASB both use the same translation, hating. In the Greek, it points to a continuing and regular habit of relationships. One commentator said this in a quote, it was our natural hatefulness which begot mutual hatred. And there's a different direction. Rather than the unbeliever being on the receiving end of the hatred in reality number six, now we're the dispenser of it in reality number seven. Before Christ saved us, and our hearts were regenerated. Our heart hated God. Our heart hated other people. It reflects the misery of the hopeless and a fallen heart that generates disdain for others. And we see this currently going on in our society, just even through the racial hatred that's taking place and the discrimination. It also explains why husbands and wives divorce, hating each other, because their egos clash, each wanting his or her own way, even at the cost of their marriage, their family, their children. And children raised by hateful parents will themselves likely become hateful. Hateful of their parents even, of what was modeled for them, hateful of their teachers, or of any person that threatens their freedom and self-will because they saw this modeled by their parents. Eventually it can even mean the hatred of friends. 
One commentator said this, hatred is perhaps the loneliest of sins. And he goes on to say, blind to God's truth, God's standards, God's will, and all spiritual reality, unbelievers generate exactly the kind of world that is ours today. They can do nothing else. But although we despise the sins that characterize, motivate, and drive them, we must constantly keep in mind Paul's point in this verse. All of us, without exception, were ourselves once characterized, motivated, and driven by the same sins that are so repulsive to us now. That awareness should humble us and keep us on guard against hating those who are sinful or who need salvation through Jesus Christ, just as we did. And this brings us full circle, all the way back to our sermon proposition. Seven realities that the gospel saves us from so that we can celebrate God's work and his grace as it continues in our life. I had a tough week this week. This did. I mean, just just impatient with my wife, insensitive. I'm selfish. I am. You have a selfish pastor. And yet I was so thankful to study this verse and that God had me focusing on this verse. Why? Because as bad as things were, it was a tough week. Shared with the elders, they prayed for me. I was so thankful. As bad as things were, I studied this verse and I, I, I see the gift of God and all that he has saved me from. As difficult as it was, as difficult as your week may have been, my friend, as difficult as next week may be, as difficult as last week may have been, whenever the season is in your life, and we will come into those valleys. We will. We will. But he's gracious. He's gracious. He's so merciful. And this is a gospel-centered passage. And it's beautiful. And next week... We get to continue looking at it. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared... Beginning of verse 5, what's yours say? He saved us. He saved us. The Savior's born. The Savior's coming. He is our focus. And I know that it's going to continue to bless me to just even meditate on Titus 3.3. And I had a chance all last week. I want to encourage you just to spend some time this week to bathe in that verse. Just especially when, when life seems so challenging, like things are so difficult, he has, in his grace and in his kindness, it says, and we're going to talk about it next week, his kindness, 
leads us to repentance. His mercy allows our broken marriages to be restored, our broken friendships, our broken relationships, our fellowship with him to be restored. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Nothing could prepare us more to celebrate the birth of our Savior and his appearing into this world than focusing on this passage. I rejoice. Pray with me. Father, you are so merciful and gracious, and I thank you for having such an encouraging flock of people in this church, servants in every way that want to honor you with their lives. And we had a chance to sing songs of praise and even sing about the reality of our redemption. And it was marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. It was grace greater than all of our sin. It was kindness and it was mercy that you pulled us out of this world and I pray that you'll bless our study next week, even in advance, that you'll allow me even more focused this week than I had this last week. That we could really just celebrate you. Celebrate your grace and your ongoing work in our lives and consider the reality of how much you have spared us from. And I pray that the application and the message today would cling to us, that we would cling to it. And we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, that we would be doers, that we'd meditate on these things. We'd think about how you want us to continue to grow into Christ-likeness. Thank you for his example and the reality of who he is and what he has done for us. We pray that you'll prepare us for a great week, that you'll walk with us and that we'll walk with you, that we'll keep stride with your word, that we'll keep stride with those who are trying to offer us counsel so that we do not end up on a foolish course or path. Break us of our pride that wants to kick against the goads. Help us to see the value of having such dear people in our lives that want to offer us direction and keep us from the pitfalls that we're blind to, that we're deceived by. And Lord, finally, I just want to pray for the opportunities with family and friends that as they open up, that you would provide gospel opportunities for us to be faithful to the message, that we would preach your holiness and our own sinfulness before them, that we would Point them to Christ as the only Savior that they must ask him for forgiveness and entrust their very lives to him, trusting in him as Savior and Lord. They must repent. They must repent. They must repent. Would we be willing to share that message with them? And Father, if it would be your will, would they be able to receive it and respond? Again, we praise you for this time as a church family and we look forward to this week and this season, celebrating the reality of all that you are. In Christ's name we pray, amen.